Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Just looking for your support to keep this show on the road. Uh, and the way you do that is you click the link in the podcast you're listening to right now. That says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee. Try for a month and see if you think it's value for money. You get access to our entire back catalogue all in one consolidated feed. And you don't have to listen to me beg. Every cent we get helps keep these mics on and the conversations going. And we have another chock-a-block week ahead. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please maybe click the link and have a look while you're listening to this conversation with Lynn Boylan from Sinn Féin. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and I'm back flying solo because this podcast is taking place before 2 p.m. And we all know he doesn't get up before 2 p.m. God bless him. God bless his cotton socks. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk to Martin later on this afternoon. Um, but we are delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time this year by Senator Lynn Boylan, Sinn Féin Senator Lynn Boylan. Lynn, how are you? And uh, it's a bit late in the day, but Happy New Year nonetheless. Yeah, Happy New Year, Tony. Yeah, no, all good. Looking forward to another busy year. <laughs> It could be a extremely busy year, but we might mention that towards the end. But in the before we go there, um, there has been scandal after scandal over the last few months. To be honest, let's t- let's tell the truth. We can draw a line from everything from Robert Troy last August September to where we stand in terms of Hep C and nursing homes and redress schemes. So one of the scandals that you you um, uh, unveiled due to the FOI, FOI work that was revealed to you uh, in terms of the uh, <laughs> everybody's utility bills, uh, it's it's kind of gone a little bit under the radar, and yet it's something that speaks to uh, the system and speaks to how people are ultimately. You know, uh, we listen to podcasts now, and you'll hear these uh, these ads saying. You know, please freeze responsibly. Turn down your heater. Um, don't you know? Only eat on every second day. All of these things, and all of these, is brought to you by the government of Ireland. It seems that we're all being preached to do these things, and but based on what you've uncovered, nothing like that has happened to the the um, providers, shall we say? Yeah, and the fact that those the, the large energy users don't need to shop around; they just, you know, well, I suppose they shop around their politicians to to lobby them for what they want. Whereas we have to make the hard graft and ring around our providers. Um, but it's been a bugbear of mine for for a long time that we have an energy regulator that has in its mission to protect the public interest and also to ensure that we have what they say is safe, secure and sustainable energy at an affordable price, but yet they don't necessarily (laughs) understand that their mission means they have to protect the citizens. Um, And so I had asked the committee to ask the CRU to come in more often because the only ones they're ever responsible to is actually the Eructus Committee. So I think we need to be holding them to account. But what has come to light over the last uh, so I just need to weeks. point out for our listeners, yeah. the CRU is the Commission for Regula- Re- Regulation of Utilities. It's just, we, there will be a little bit of jargon in this pod, folks, but but bear with us. We, when we say LEU, we mean large large energy users. And when we say CRU, it's the Commission for Regulation of Utilities. Yeah, and apology, because I ha- I actually hate acronyms, so it give out to me if I use them. But it, And it's one of those bugbears as well, is the fact that anytime we talk about energy at the committee, we have experts come in and they tell us more or less, this is very complicated, you just wouldn't get it. Um, but I think our listeners, you know, your listeners will guess uh, what was going on for the last 12 years. Um, and it was deliberately wrapped up in very vague language, very technical language, so that it sort of stayed under the radar for a long time. 
There's a little bit of serendipity uh, going on here because it started in 2009, as you refer to, when then Minister Eamon Ryan, uh, now Minister again, Eamon Ryan was was in one seat. And the phrase you used in in the the documents that you that I've seen said, uh, "Never waste a crisis." So, if you might want to explain what you mean by that and why, um, ultimately it it how it's hit the public purse as opposed to what we call the the large energy users. Yeah, so in, in 2009, we'll all be familiar that the, the economy crashed and everybody was was more or less on their knees, you know, house prices crashed. Uh, but the minister at the day, as he said, Minister Ryan brought forward a cabinet memo uh, basically saying that, you know, we couldn't afford to continue helping everybody with their energy bills. We're in a crisis, um, but it has been a long-standing demand by industry, these large energy users, uh, that their bills were too expensive. So if we just helped them and not helped the Joe Public, um, we could probably afford, afford to do it uh, and unwind it, even though it would be deeply unpopular. Um, so it was couched up in this language then that it would save jobs. So Eamon Ryan went to the into the doll at the time in 2009, 2010, saying this is an essential measure. Uh, it's needed to protect the jobs and those large energy user businesses, um, you know, that provide us with all this corporate tax and provide us with all this employment. Um, but in actual fact, it was on the back of lobbying by industry. They wanted this uh, this subsidy to help them pay, bring down their bills and, and, and they wanted I, Joe Public to pay for it. I have the quote here. It says the permanent rebalancing from October 21st, from 1st of October 2010 of network tariffs toward large energy users to be paid for by higher prices to domestic consumers. This will yield 50 million euro per annum and will provide a permanent structural benefit to the large energy users through lower network costs. Uh, it's pretty clear in that when you when you read that out loud, what that actually means, isn't it? Yeah, and they accepted that this would be deeply unpopular if if the public got wind of it. But of course, the public very very rarely understand what your electricity bill and all the different tariffs, network tariffs that are on your bill and your PSO levies and all of these technical terms. Um, people generally just pay their bill and they know if it's going up or down. Um, but yes, so basically that rebalancing was shifting fifty million euros per year onto uh, the public's back so that data centers, pharmaceutical companies, big factories would be uh, paying less on their bills. And and the, as you said about the job creators, that was the other thing that was put forward. This was the cabinet committee said, you know, well, look, it's these are um, these are we're, we're coming into a recession. So maybe this is the, the maybe this is the good thing to do. Maybe this is the right thing to do. And as I said, you know, um, it's an emergency measure kind of thing that we do to 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 protect jobs in the short term. But that's not how it washed out. No, I mean, one, you're right, it was the, the crisis was used to, to bring it in, couched in this language, save jobs. It's an emergency measure. But in actual fact, the cabinet memo says this is a permanent <laughs> rebalancing. So there was there was nothing emergency about it. And like my argument to, to, to the CRU and to, to the government ministers I've raised it with is even if you accepted this as an emergency measure, even though the language said it was meant to be permanent, even if you did that for a couple of years during the financial crash, to say that 12 years later, and we have so many large energy users that are, you know, costing us a fortune in infrastructure and, and having all of this impact on, on our energy security, that it would be allowed to continue. It, it, that's the part that really, I suppose, blows my mind. So while everyone is focused on 
the 50 euro they're going to get back at some point in time 50 euro though can we can we just briefly throw that net out there and say when it was estimated at 50 million a year was that was the cost that's there's no real hard data to show what this has actually cost joe public between 2009 and 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 today is there no, so so what happened was in October, um, in fairness to Caroline O'Doherty, she noted that what the regulator had put out in a statement was that they were looking at, I suppose, all of the things around the bill. The government had asked them, look at what are the, and again, to use technical language, they said the cost drivers <laughs> to people's bills. Um, and the regulator flagged it was going to unwind this. So she did a little bit of digging and and ran the story. And it was on the back of that then that I asked the committee to write to the regulator to tell us exactly what was going on. And we also put in the FOIs. um, And of course, that takes a while. So that's how it's only coming to to light now. But what we know is that it was supposed to be um, 50 million a year, 25 million through ESB networks, 25 million through AirGrid. But we wouldn't see that level of detail. We would just, our bills would go up and basically they would collect about 50 million euros but, but, a year. But the CRU, did the CRU have details of this? Do they have more oversight of this? So, so this is the problem. Um, the CRU said that they informed ESB and Airgrid back in April. That's in black and white in the letter we got to the committee. that They informed them they were unwinding this. And at that point, ESB networks put their hand up and went, whoops, we implemented it slightly different. So we didn't take the flat 25 million, which calculated in a percentage, which meant we took more than 50 million a year. Mm. We don't know how much more. Um, they're now saying it's roughly about 50 euro per house. But the problem is, like, so you have questions as to how did two bodies Mm. misinterpret what the regulator wanted them to do how did the regulator not spot that for 12 years and how if it was back in they said in their letter april in the committee they said oh in march we decided we were paying the public back the mistake um but how can no one tell us exactly how much was raised that's the the part that's driving me mad we have a regulator who signed you know basically instructed these two bodies to start collecting money or redistributing money in favour of, of large energy users and, and, and they can't and, tell us how much and they, and they And they seem to have had the freedom to do so in, in a way that they interpreted differently than it was supposed to have been done. And then when you come out, I mean, I know, again, we can be, we can go into it, but there's, there's, like you know, there's there's roughly what is it one one point four to one point six thousand households on the island of Ireland is the is this is the is the statistic. So so we're looking at somewhere around the, the a payback out of what about eighty eighty million uh, euro uh, to, to households between eighty and hundred and fifty are the the okay. figures that have been quoted. But I suppose the ESB networks people are saying, oh, but it's very small in the overall scheme. But actually, it's not because ESB were only supposed to be taking half of the amount aired yeah. the other half. So we reckon in our office with our calculations could be about a 35% mistake. Well, which well. is yeah, not and, an insignificant and, and, and mistake. See, see, this is the other thing that we often, we often hear is that these, these mistakes, why do these mistakes always happen to be of the benefit of the people at the top and never at the, at the consumer at the, at the, at the bottom? It's, it's, it's just, 
you know, it blows my mind that we're supposed to swallow this. As someone who talked about how the tracker mortgage scandal was 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 actually t- how it occurred, how it occurred in, deliberately by by certain certain aspects within financial regulation and was was allowed to occur. And then they say, oh, well, it just you have to accept that. All of these banks made the same mistake at the same time over the same period. And, you know, they weren't at all colluding. OK, we were all supposed to just accept that and move on. And it's similar here that these mistakes are going like that. I want. But yeah, the, I mean, and, and, and the regulator was at pains to tell the committee that ESB networks didn't benefit from this as if that was reassuring. It was like, well, at least ESB networks we own. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Actually, who benefited was, again, <laughs> these large multinational corporations that are highly profitable. Um, they're the ones who benefited, not, um, I, the, not the public and not the, the semi-state body. If I can try and simplify for, for our listeners as well, remember when we were pushing back years ago against water charges and we were told, you know, we need to have this polluter pays concept. We had to have this polluter pay concept. We were going to have this and we're going to have household water bills, water charges. And um, one of the things that was pushed back against was when the when the facts came out, it was literally, I think it was 120 percent higher for for me to drink from my tap than for one of these corporates to to you know liter per liter and this is the sort of stuff where we hear it again whereby the consumer is then subsidizing these big businesses and this is another this was just another subsidy to the point where the now Taoiseach then tarnished I think at the time when this was exposed he wasn't very impressed that this was going to take away from some of these large energy users yeah, so when when the, the regulator announced that they were going to do this, um, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment made a submission to the regulator, which at the time would have been, as you said, Leo Vradker was the, 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 head, the head minister at that point, the line minister. Um, so their submission kind of complained about the lack of consultation with the large businesses, the short amount of time of... Um, that they were industry or stakeholders were going to be allowed to engage and make submissions and also uh, kind of referred to it as punitive, that the cumulative effect of this would be punitive on on industry. Um, so, yeah, it's I mean, can we, again, good can to we know put- the Department of Enterprise are looking have our backs. Yeah. And, and OK. To play devil's advocate, he'll say that's this is again back to the to the argument of protecting these companies. They pay the corporation taxes. They pay the they they have, they're an employer, a driver of the economy, and yet we also know that they're making record profits while laying off people. We only have to look around the globe and see that they're still making record profits and they're laying letting go people. Also, you know, also within Irish industry, so it's kind of. You know, uh, there is a fallacy there. And one other th- aspect, and I don't know if, if people have quite caught on to this enough, Lynn. So I'm going to ask you this, and this is a, into the realm of speculation. We keep getting told shop around. And, and famously, in the last few weeks, the Minister Eamon Ryan came out and said, we need to wean the public off the, sto- the supports that we've had for the cost of living crisis. And yet we, there's... Things like that, things like this, show us that we we have to be weaned off. Whereas the supports will they'll fight tooth and nail to preserve them for for these industries. Yeah, their supports are permanent. Ours mm. are our actual emergency measures that they they give us. But it, like one of the things that 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 drives me mad, and as I said, like the regulator comes in and is supposed to have the public's back. If you compare it to regulators in other countries, they do do more direct intervention to protect people. So like 
we're talking about wean is often shop around like in even in britain now i know they're having a crisis at the moment but that's their own making but the regulator would have um would ban the likes of what's called a default tariff on your bill and you'll be familiar with these in terms of your insurance we know that if you're a loyal customer to an insurance company you actually get penalized so the people who don't shop around get penalized um with energy that's the same thing is happening in Ireland. If you don't change your energy provider every year, you're being penalised. What they did in Britain was they capped the tariff that you can be shifted to. They just said you can't charge above this amount. So even if you don't shop around, there's a level of protection that's put in there for you. Um, like I've raised that with the, the the regulator at committee and they're like, oh, no, we don't like interfering with the markets. We have a very competitive market. Um, they'll, they'll point to issues in Britain and there are issues in Britain with energy, but it's not because of that. The same with the, um, so while the, this subsidy as well was happening, other countries have designed their tariffs to do the opposite, that it's hmm. the large energy users that are subsidizing households. Well, Spain, quite- Sp- Spain most recently did that, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, even just up the road in the north, the, the design of the tariff is the opposite, the flip of what we do down here. Um, the same in uh, when it comes to the, the PSO levy, which people will, will see on their bill. It's a flat rate. But the design of that in the south, so we all have this levy that helps subsidize renewable energy. But in the way it's calculated in, in the south is that, again, <clears throat> It's the households who pay a bigger proportion because it's based on your peak use. And these large, so-called large energy users, they don't have a peak. They just have a steady demand. Again, the SRI met with us and was like, you can redesign that. The minister has to just step in, redesign it, and it can be redistributed so it's fairer. Um, But they won't do that. Mm. So it's always the same answer. Shop around. You take on all the responsibility, but you have ministers and regulators who refuse to to look around, see what the evidence is of practice that would help people with their bills and, and help them in the long term. And they refuse to take those actions. And the, and back to the CRU, if you don't mind, the, the regulator themselves, the, we keep hearing this thing of, um, well, if we give them more powers, if we give these people more oversight, if we give them more powers, is 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 it a question of of them requiring more more powers to be able to and maybe a, a change in view that they're here to protect the public as opposed to the 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 market? I mean, you could change their their remit to strengthen their the role that they have in protecting us, but it is in their mission statement to start with. So they they could just take a, a more open-minded approach to that. Yeah. Um, they do need more powers around standing charges on bills, and they have openly told us that at the committee that they don't have the power to regulate those. So that falls back to the government, could give them the, the power. Um, and I know D- Darren O'Rourke has introduced a PMB mm. to allow for that. So they could get more powers that way. Um but I think the biggest issue with the regulator is they don't have the resources. And mm. this seems to be the age old problem with everything in, in this country is that we have lots of legislation, but we don't actually resource the bodies that are supposed to enforce it. And that's where I feel the regulator, they're, ne- they're never going to admit that. But about 25 percent of their budget is spent on outside consultants. So mm. when ESB networks, when Airgrid, when any of these energy users come to them with proposals, it's very, very hard for them if they don't have the in-house skills to mm. really analyze what's been asked of them. And I think that that's, that's something that has to change. They do need more resources, but then that comes with responsibility that they need to be yeah. better at 
I suppose, coming in and being held accountable to the committee. Yeah, I sure remember the the founding the foundation document of NAMA. Uh, I think it was one of the sixth or seventh paragraph said about acting in the public good, uh, but they chose to interpret that as um, returning a profit to the state as opposed to acting in the public good around the housing crisis. And, you know, so it just shows you where uh, a phrase can be actually used and, and interpreted differently to, to to who's greater good. You mentioned your colleague, Darren, and um, I do I do want to, to then there's been a lot of talk now between you know the minister Eamon Ryan talking about well in the in a future government they could they could cooperate with Sinn Féin they could see themselves working with Sinn Féin but yet we still continue to hear that Sinn Féin I think it was Fionan Sheen as recently as this weekend said uh, that the uh, that the climate policy of Sinn Féin continues to be uh, wishy-washy I think might have been one of the phrases he used um I, you have a long history of someone who has campaigned on climate action, climate issues. How do you feel your party is set up in 2023, particularly specifically around the climate emergency that we are now actually living out rather than just something that's, you know, on the horizon? Oh, I don't accept the, the, the criticism. Um, like you only have to look at our track record, both in Brussels, uh, how I voted and we've always argued for greater ambition than what the Irish government was looking for. And at some times in negotiations held our nerve when the Green Group in Brussels were always happy to con- to compromise at the end of the day. But like we pushed for the 80% renewable targets, it's now accepted as government policy. We were calling for that a number of years ago. We introduced microgeneration bill back in 2015. It passed. It took, or not 2015, it was 2017, but it took five years before the government have introduced it. They still haven't. Not every person who has solar panels on the roof are still getting paid for their energy. So like, I think that it's an easy uh, throwaway comment, but actually the reality is that we have been very constructive in engaging with the policies again at committee. There's the three of us on the committee. We would be the most active in there Um attend every meeting, are very constructive in our approach, the same with the Climate Act. But look, if Fiona Sheehan doesn't want to go and look at our website and read the policy documents, I mean, we, like, we, I think, we I think produced what, a policy what, document what, which completely I, shifted retrofitting. I, I want to defend Fiona here because he's, he's only, he's only um, writing what is a commonly held narrative, Lynn. That you know, I mean, it and and it doesn't help. I don't think it helps that when you have um, uh, your leader Mary Lou Macdonald going to meet members in rural communities and saying things that kind of mean that people maybe won't have to change the way they're doing things. And and so whether there's policies behind it that actually contradict that, those sound bites don't help when when people go, well, you know, Sinn Féin are trying to be a, a populist party. You know, populism means different things to different people. But you know, that's the that's the that's the charge that he's leveling effectively. It's populism. Yeah, he can char- level whatever charges he wants. Um, Fionn is no fan of, of the party, so <laughs> we're used to him having pot, pot shots at us. Look, the issue is, and I think when it comes to, to agriculture, and I say this, as I suppose, as a dub, so I'll probably be criticised, but I don't think the agricultural lobby or the environmental lobby have done themselves any favours. And that's not every single environmentalist or every single agricultural body but I think there's been a lot of very hardline positions taken which haven't benefited anyone and you watch that played out on social media and the reason why it's really unhelpful is because it forces people back into their their corners and you don't actually achieve anything so I do think the only way we're going to get delivery in terms of our sectoral targets on agriculture 
is almost, I suppose, getting into the room and talking directly with farmers. I, I follow quite a lot of, of actual farmers on social media who are doing incredible stuff and will tell you that if the resources were put in place or if the government created a market for their product instead of being so passionate about creating markets for powdered milk, that they could actually make a proper living out of it. So I, I think the only way you're ever going to achieve sectoral emission targets, and that, that's with any sector, transport is going to be really difficult as well. You see mm. the resistance to people wanting to give up their cars. You have to talk to people. And that is, for me, what a just transition is about. It's going in, it's talking to communities, it's listening to their concerns, not lecturing them. Mm. listening to what the concerns are and then setting out how can you make it viable how can it be viable to shift your your whether that's shift the type of agriculture you're doing or the way you farm whether that's shift the way you get to work um but you won't you won't achieve anything by just saying this is the way it's going to be and and that's look that's the way i i always approach things it's well, and I think it works across the board and lots of the difficult choices that are being made. You have to talk to communities. You have to listen to them. And look, they, they talk about planning. <laughs> Trying to block communities from having a say is never going to achieve anything. It only causes further delays and anger. And Last thing, you just we've almost just there talked about some of the stuff that we've seen on our streets about communities feeling left behind, communities feeling... Um, uh, disempowered uh, and 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 then we see it spilling over into some of the more disappointing aspects of of the protests which frankly some of them are just flat out intimidation you know that there's been intimidation things carried out but again uh, I feel like we're going back to this Fiona on article again he said fair play to Sinn Féin because they've held the line here um, but at the same time there is an element creeping where you're seeing, you know, posters of your colleagues being abused. Um, all of this stuff starting to spill out in in areas. That there was people calling, wanted to call to Desi Ellis's home uh, to to create this. How within the party are, are discussions happening, and 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 then within those local communities, are people feeling that with the outreach is possible? Because you know, the government haven't really stepped up to the plate. They're speaking out both sides of their mouth saying, you know, no room for the far right rhetoric. And also we're going to uh, speed up deportations really quickly. Uh, we, we, You know, it's mixed messages. How are you finding it within Sinn Féin? I, look, I don't think you'd be lying if anyone said it's not awful to watch what's playing out in some some communities and the the, the rhetoric that's coming out, like people saying burn them out in Finglas, buildings being actually set on fire um, is frightening. But the only way that you can, and, and this is exactly what I was saying a minute ago, is you have to have conversations with people, people who are either being fed misinformation or are just frustrated and don't feel like, you know, anybody is listening to them. You have to sit down, you have to have difficult conversations and you can't have those on social media. It's just, look, social media has has its functions, <laughs> but, but you have to go and have, sit down. And I've done this over mm. the last few weeks. You've sat down around like kitchen tables. I've, you've picked up the phone. You've had very difficult conversations with people who you have a lot of respect for mm. and kind of talking them around. It's the same way. You have to go in, you have to knock door after door after door and listen to what people's concerns are. And, and it's just, explain to them why some of it is misinformation some of it's just misdirected anger at mm. who's responsible that's not easy work tony 
that's mm. it's it's tiring it's you know it's upsetting at times because they're people who might be in your own family you know mm. they might be your own friends um and that's where i think the difference is it's all well and good for the government ministers to to put out a press statement or to say something again on social media but the hard graft in keeping the far right from getting any bigger than they already are in this country is about having conversations one-to-one in calm uh, environments. And and that that is very hard work and very... People are exhausted. People are exhausted. Local community activists are exhausted. We've gone from crisis to crisis and we've gone from, you know, uh, from from the global financial crisis to to... COVID to Ukraine to all of these various issues and they're worn out and then they're looking around and we need there needs to be a a, a an actual whether it's trade unions whether it's worker workers conglomerates all of those people need to step up as well there's a there's a there's a big gap there and I think there's a there's political leadership needs to um political leadership needs to also step up and say Okay, uh, can we get everybody around the table or in these communities? What are, what are we going to do in terms of resources without without being dishonest with people? Because we can't fix the decades worth of um, neglect that's happened overnight. We just can't. But people, are, I think, people genuinely are worn out. They're just tired. Yeah. No. And <laughs> look, you're always it's the same people. You'll see campaigning yeah. on the same all the time. The issues, and as you said, it does get exhausting. But this, for me. You know, when I ha- had a conversation with someone last week, just to say this is more than party politics. Like for those of us who are really, really concerned about what's happening, um, this is this is just more important. Um, and I think that we all have to to come together to to push back and resist, even if we're tired, even if we're exhausted. This to me is this is really serious and really scary. Um, yeah. If we if we don't win this battle. So, the, you know, this goes above. Yeah, but I think we also, but it also brings, it challenges people like me as well, who've spent years telling the guy, the guys who self-describe themselves as centrist dads to stop placating these people. And this is what will happen. And now, and now I have to almost go back to them and, go, and, and stop and not say, told you so. I have to now actually <laughs> say, okay, swallow that hard, Tony, and actually say to that fella, well, actually, maybe we could deal with this a different way and make sure they don't feel more comfortable you know, been fash adjacent, if if anything else, you know, and this is a scary part where we where we see it that way and you you hear some of the mood music. Anyway, look, we've gone places I didn't I didn't expect to this morning and I appreciate your time. Uh, the only the last thing I'll say to you is um we are are uh, are, you, are you election ready yourself? Are you, are you have you got have you an idea of what you want to do if, if there was an election this year? So no this days where I say the easier jobs <laughs> to get out of politics. <laughs> this is um this is the 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 line that I've I've heard a lot now, but unfortunately, Lynn, I think you're I think you're in for the long haul. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. All right. We, listen, folks, we we'll leave it there. We have um Nicholas Dale Leal in Colombia coming back to us this evening to talk about um Latin America, South America, and some of the things that have gone on in Peru. Uh, so it'll be good to catch up with him and hopefully we'll have the other fella out of bed by then. Uh, thanks to Lynn uh, for her time and also for for the work that's happened there. We'll all be getting 50 quid folks. It's like getting a little quid a little little bit of an SSIA bump back in the old days for for the old fogies on uh, who are still around. <laughs> we'll talk to you all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to 
Subscribe now on page.